Well, good evening, everyone. If you would, open your Bibles to Psalm 14. Psalm 14. And please stand with me out of respect for God's holy word. Let us hear it together. Psalm 14. I'll read the whole psalm. And this is, To the chief musician, a psalm of David. The fool hath said in his heart, There is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none that doeth good. The Lord looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand and seek God. They are all gone aside. They are all together become filthy. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. Have all the workers of iniquity no knowledge? who eat up my people as they eat bread and call not upon the Lord? There were they in great fear, for God is in the generation of the righteous. Ye have shamed the counsel of the poor, because the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that the salvation of Israel were come out of Zion. When the Lord bringeth back the captivity of his people, Jacob shall rejoice, and Israel shall be glad. Let us pray. O oh, our Father in heaven, Speak to our hearts. I pray that you would give me grace to speak your word faithfully and help us all to take heed to it, to be convicted by it, to be pointed more fully to the Lord Jesus Christ and to walk with him more faithfully. For Christ's sake, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Our topic today is sin is practical atheism. This is a meditation based on Stephen Charnock, a Puritan, author of the 17th century. He wrote a book called The Existence and Attributes of God, and that is a classic work on the doctrine of God, his nature, and his attributes. A few weeks ago, Pastor Jeff sent me a piece from that book, actually the second chapter, entitled Practical Atheism. That little piece has proven to be rich, convicting, and soul-stirring to me. So since I've been meditating on Charnock's little piece on practical atheism, you get to share in those meditations. That's what I've brought for our consideration this evening. And so these thoughts, many of them are directly from Stephen Charnock, and then some I've either greatly summarized or added on. The original chapter is over 100 pages long, at least in one edition. I haven't brought 100 pages this evening. I've brought, I think it's nine pages. Not very much. But at least it's something to get us started on some of the riches that are here. If you hear anything that's false, misleading, confusing, or unclear, then chalk it down to my error, not Stephen Charnock's thoughts. Psalm 14, where we are here this evening. In this psalm, David displays the relationship between the wicked and the righteous. The wicked who deny God and are corrupt are always seeking to devour and destroy the righteous. But God will defend the righteous. The wicked will be in great fear. The Lord is the refuge of the righteous. The salvation of Israel will come from Zion. Salvation will stream from Jerusalem, the house of God, the hill of Zion, like beams of healing light from the sun, and the Lord will bring back and restore the captives of his people. Jacob will rejoice. Israel will be glad. Oh, how sweet it is to be a member of that country, to be a, a member of that nation, a citizen of that nation. How sweet to be a righteous man. Oh, what a privilege it is to be among the blessed of God, the favored nation, the Israel of God. But consider again what David does in this psalm in relation to the wicked. In the first section... Verses 1 through 3, he universalizes the wickedness of those he's talking about. We might have thought the word wicked were some peculiar class of very evil people, unusual in the world for their opposition to God and his people. But no, David gives us a clear testimony that wickedness, corruption, abomination, yes, even denial of God, are the universal realities of man apart from God's grace. Read verses 1 to 3 again. 
The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none that doeth good. The Lord looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand and seek God. They are all gone aside. They are all together become filthy. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. Generally, the higher one's position, the more full and comprehensive the view is that you can see. If I'm at street level in Pensacola, I can see a lot. But if I hop in a police helicopter and join a search squad up there in the air, I could see a lot more in a short time. In verse 2, David pictures the Lord, God, Jehovah of Israel, exalted in the glory of heaven. But heaven is not an ivory tower that separates God from the earth. Instead, heaven is the glorious control tower from which God has a clear view of everything that is going on. He has a perfect, complete, universal, and uninterrupted view of the history of men. He sees the actions and the hearts of men. God sees. He sees you. He sees me. He sees our hearts. His eye rests on every one of our actions, every selfish longing, every angry throb of our hearts. He hears the words that we speak. He knows the thoughts that we think. If we could only have a clear sight of the universal nature of God's reconnaissance, it would really help us. His security cameras never glitch. His surveillance system never goes down. He sees, he hears, and he knows. Children, God doesn't have any cameras. He doesn't need them. I'm using it as a metaphor, a picture. He sees. God sees all things. From heaven, the Lord looked down upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand and seek God, and there were none. All had gone aside from the path. All had become altogether filthy. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. David's pronouncement, there is none that doeth good. No, not one, clarifies for us the universal character of that first verse where he says, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. We might have thought that fool was one of those exceptionally degraded people that is unfit for human society, a man not to be esteemed in the world. But David's language shows us that the fool is every man. The common man, I am the fool by nature. You are the fool by nature. In common speech among us, atheists are people who boldly and publicly declare that there is no God. The word atheist comes from ah, no, and theos, God, no God. You probably would be offended if I called you an atheist. You know that the scriptures declare God to us. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You know that this God is a glorious, eternal, infinite spirit, as Pastor Jeff has been telling us. You know that in his perfection, he has all power, knows all things, does whatever he wills in heaven or in earth. You know that he is not dependent on any creature, but that his decree stands. He doesn't need you or me to help him know anything, do anything, understand anything, or feel anything. He is the glorious, self-existent trinity, three persons, in undivided, simple unity. You know these things about God. Praise God. We have heard the truth about God declared among us, and we profess to believe it. And we do believe it. Those of us who are trusting Christ, who have been transformed by the Holy Spirit of God, we believe it. There are some who do not. And yet, if you ask them, do you believe in God? I think all here would say yes. And most in this city, in this nation, a majority would say yes, there is a God. That's changing. But many still profess a God. We are not atheists, we think. But notice that David is concerned here with heart atheism. The fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. And then he goes on to say that he does no good. That fool does no good. The principle of atheism is sin. The principle or spirit of atheism is sin. Let me say it another way. When I sin, when you sin, we are saying 
there is no God. This dark folly might be manifested in a secret questioning of whether there be a God. It can also be manifesting wishing there were no God. It can be a wish, a hope, a desire that if there is a God, he would not be the, the God that is displayed here in the Bible. It could be a wish that if there must be a God, he would still allow us to pursue the longings and desires and purposes of our own sinful flesh, of our dreams of sin, of rebellion, of self-love, of idolatry. And if we hope that, if we wish that, we are wishing that God would not be God, and therefore we are hoping that there were no God. Because if God were different than he was, then he would be no God according to Stephen Charnock, and I think that's good, good logic. Even if we consciously deny such a filthy thought that there is no God, or that we wish there would be no God, or that we wish there would be a different God, every sin we commit is a practice of that anti-God hope and dream. On better moments, you might stop us and say, do you believe the scripture? And we would say, yes. Do you believe that God is as he reveals himself in the word? And we would say, yes. But if minutes, hours, days later, we choose the path of sin, in any instance, in that moment, we have chosen an atheistic approach. This heart atheism includes a practical denial of his attributes, his providence, his care for his creatures, his just dealing in the world. This heart atheism, this practical atheism, denies many essential attributes of God. And if we deny any attribute essential to who he is, then we deny himself. We deny God himself. For example, we might accuse God of being imperfect when we say, my law is better than his law in our hearts. We might say that he is unwise. His providences are not best for me. I, had a, I would have a better plan for arranging my day. Or if we think that he is limited in power, I doubt he will work things out. I could do a better job doing it if I were he. We're saying that he's not God because we're saying he's not infinitely wise, infinitely perfect, infinitely mighty, that he knows all things and does right in the earth. It's as if we were saying, there is no God such as the Bible describes to us, which is to say there's no God with a capital G. We might admit a, a God with a small g. What I mean is a God who's not God, a God of our own imagination, a God more like us. And this practical atheism comes in and affects all of our worship. It causes men to withhold from God the worship that is due to him, to seek other gods, to worship the one God, in a false or superstitious way that he has not commanded. This is to respond to God differently than he told us to, differently than he has revealed himself as being worthy of, which is to say he's not the God he says he is. And therefore we want to replace God, which is a denial of him. So there's, according to Charnock, and I believe he's right, there's a lot of atheism all around us in us. That's the painful part. As Paul says in Romans chapter 1, when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, an act of worship, but failed. Neither were thankful, an act of worship, but became vain in their imaginations and their foolish heart was darkened. They began to make images of God like man, bird, birds, beasts, or creeping things, and this practical atheism made, the, made them change the truth of God into a lie and worship and serve the creature more than the creator who is blessed forever. So indeed the fool has said in his heart, there is no God, no God as he revealed himself to be. So let's look at three main ideas about this practical atheism. First, the universal extent of sin's practical atheism. Secondly, sin's atheistic claim in several details, and then sin's atheistic wish that there would be no God. 
First, the universal extent of sin's practical atheism. This folly of practically denying God is in all men because it is natural by our corrupted nature. Not natural as God created Adam and Eve in the garden before their fall when they were fresh and pure in the Garden of Eden, but natural now as sons and daughters of Adam, the universal nature that we all inherit because of sin comes to us and makes us practical atheists. And because it is natural, it is universal. And that's why David connects the two ideas of atheism and no good that is done for all men. There's no good. No, not one. None does good. Why? They're saying in their heart, there's no God. When God looked down from heaven, all he saw were fools. Psalm 58, 3, the wicked are estranged from the womb, estranged from God, separated from God, foreigners to God. When someone is a foreigner to you, a stranger to you, it's as if you don't exist to them and they don't exist to you. And when we are born into this world, we're born with atheistic principles at heart. They're estranged from the womb. They go astray as soon as they be born, speaking lies. What flows from the womb and is not learned by custom or influence of those that are around us must be natural and therefore universal. What is the basic lie that gives birth to all the lies that we tell throughout our entire lives? The lie that there is no God or at least no such God as the Bible gives us. Without the grace of God, practical atheism controls all men's lives. Their works are not good because they are not good. No, not one, as it says here in Psalm 14. Actions speak louder than words. That's what Mr. Charnock tells us. He has a section there, actions speak louder than words. He said, just go out and look. And what do you see? Do men believe in God? Not according to what you see. They, in his day, there was, it was very rare. He says several times, it's very rare to find someone who says there is no God. You'd be surprised now, there's plenty. But still, many people say there is a God, but actions speak louder than words. What are the words? There is a God. They're easy to say. Many forces can be at work to help us say those words. Maybe we grew up in a religious family or our society in general, there are religious tendencies. We're in a conservative society, you know, in the South, the Bible Belt. So that it constrains us to say there is a God. But man's life, his habitual actions declare what is true, what principle rules his heart. A sinful life declares a sinful heart. A sinful life says more about your true convictions than all the words that you can muster. Mr. Charnock says, those are more deservedly termed atheists who acknowledge a God and walk as there were none than those that deny a God and walk as if there were one. To say and not do makes you more of an atheist than to do and not say. So Paul calls some religious Jews or Judaizers in Titus deniers of God because of their works. They profess that they know God, but in works they deny him. They're saying, no God. Even though with their words they're saying God. They're saying no God with their works. So atheism is the spirit of every sin, as we mentioned before. And what is, if we think about sin in another way, what is the essence of sin? Disobedience, missing the mark of God's law. And what is disobedience but the rejection or resistance of the one who commanded? And what is it to reject or resist the living, perfect, glorious God who deserves all of our attention, all of our love, all of our focus? What is it to resist him but to declare or wish that he were not who he is? The language of every sin is, I would be a Lord to myself and I would not have God superior to me. Sins of omission, not doing what we're supposed to do, deny him, deny him his right to command us. Sins of commission, doing stuff that's wrong, set some lust or desire in the place of God. I will obey that instead of the living God. Making those lusts our commander and our Lord when he alone deserves that place. So this practical atheism is universal 
because it is natural to our sinful condition and manifests itself in men's life of sin. Second, let's look at sin's atheistic claim in a little more detail. This sinful principle, this practical atheism says, it has a voice, it speaks, it says in every man's heart, when I say man, I mean man, woman, boy, or girl, it says God is unworthy to have a being, it says God is foolish and impure, and it says God should be the most miserable of all beings. First, sin's first atheistic claim, God is unworthy of a being. Not only do we wish God wouldn't exist, put him out of our mind, violate his claims, but we say God is not worthy of being who the Bible says he is. He's not worthy of being. This is not what every sinner consciously thinks. But it is the plain speech of his sin. The same impulse that drives a person to contradict God's command would stir him to cast God down from his throne and destroy his very being if it were in the person's power. The sinner's will takes the position God's will should have. The person's glory takes the place of God's glory. He would destroy God. Sin says God is unworthy of a being, and thus it is a kicking against God. Moses warned Israel in Deuteronomy Jeshurun, Israel, waxed fat and kicked. Deuteronomy 32. Think of our Lord's words to Saul of Tarsus. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. Now, there is no more insulting gesture in the world than turning your back on someone, lifting up your leg, and kicking them violently to topple them over and remove them from your presence. Consider that every one of your sins kicks back at God. You would treat the worst criminal the worst vagrant who comes in and invades your property and wants to do unseemly things, you would treat him with more respect than that. And yet the Bible describes our sin as kicking back at God. Sin says God is unworthy of a being, and thus it is a reproach against God. Our sinful condition causes us to think God is unfit company for us. We turn from God to sin as if sin were better company than the one who is the fountain of all goodness in whose light we see light. Why else would Paul tell us that the universal reality of sinful man is that they do not like to retain God in their knowledge? They don't like it. They don't want it. What do we thrust from our minds? What do you try to forget? Not wishing to spend any more time on it. Only things we wish didn't exist. And in this sinful world, this sin-cursed world, there are plenty of things we wish didn't exist, so we try to put them out of our mind. Sometimes we still have to take responsibility for them. But should God be one of those things? It is by sin. Whenever we sin, the principle of every act of sin, the principle of the root of sin, and the reigning principle in those who know not Christ, the conquered principle in those who do know Christ, but it's still there because their flesh is still there, is God is not worthy of a being. And so we put him out of our mind, sometimes temporarily, sometimes for a long time. But every desire for sin is a desire to depose God and put him to the side. This is all part of sin's claim. God is unworthy of a being. When we push God aside and put sin in its place, we are saying, I like this more than God. But sin not only says God is unworthy of a being, it also says that God is a foolish and impure being. It's hard to say these words. This is horrible. The eternal king, immortal, invisible, the only wise God deserves honor and glory forever and ever. But in man's court, in the court of every sinful heart, the secret court where man is only seen by the eye of God, says God's ways are foolish and his laws are impure. A man, woman, or child hears God's holy commands in his word. These commands are the result of God's infinite wisdom, ordaining, planning, purposing for the creature's good and for the creator's glory. God's laws are not arbitrary laws. Written on a whim when God had nothing better to do, God's laws are pure and holy, right and good. Like Psalm 19 tells us, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting 
the soul. God's laws are the picture of wisdom and purity. They reflect his own beautiful perfection. But when a a person created by the holy God in the image of the holy God looks at God's holy law and then looks at Satan's filthy suggestion and chooses Satan's suggestion over God's law, he is saying that Satan's words are wise and pure and God's are foolish and impure. God created us in his image. Being created in his image means we have judgment. Animals don't. They don't have the freedom of choice. They have instincts, but we have judgment. And as soon as we choose something, we're exercising a power God gave us that is unique to us. And if we choose sin and reject God, we have just said, sin is right, God is wrong. Sin is wise, God is foolish. Sin is pure, God is impure. We are saying Satan's promises fit my case. God's promises are irrelevant and inappropriate for such a wonderful little God as I myself am. When we sin, we are saying that God's law has expired for us, that we don't think his edicts are still valid and that we question the goodness of his reign. Because our sinful flesh tells us that God's beautiful laws reflect foolishness and impurity in him, we disown the rule that God sets over us. We own any other rule rather than that of God's prescribing Do men really find freedom in sin? They submit themselves to ridiculous laws, ridiculous rules, ridiculous troubles, ridiculous trials. Sin is foolish. But we will own any other rule except God's. We set ourselves up to rule. We not only become our own rule, but we would make ourselves the rule for God and give laws to our Creator. Because of this, we're negligent to learn and apply any of God's commandments. We shrink from them. Stephen Charnock says, why is it that we have a natural reluctance to find out what God's God's will for us really is? Why is it that we don't long for the laws of God and we study his word with hunger and thirst to say, what does God want me to do? As believers, we do, but imperfectly. And believers, why is there that other principle that comes in, oh, don't go so far. I don't know, should we really be studying God's word right now? I mean, I I did that last year. And, And if you're an unbeliever, if you're not in Christ, the ruling and reigning principle is to push God's law to the side. Because of this principle, we're negligent to learn and apply God's commandments. We shrink from them, avoid them, are bored by them. And when we do get some interest in a law or command of God, sometimes, check me if it's not true, sometimes it is because we're actually trying to fulfill some lust thereby. For example, we might study the command of God regarding a particular issue so that we can join a particular party or position so that we can oppress someone else with our view of God's word. In other words, what I often have been an argumentative young man who thinks he knows something because he read two books about it. Rather than truly submitting our own souls to the will and direction of God. Remember the Pharisees, they loved God's law, right? They sometimes took a lesser law, like a vow to give something to God, to serve as an excuse to protect their lust for breaking a more important command honoring their father and mother by supporting them. Stephen Charnock says, that's atheism at work because you're taking God's holy law and you're picking the ones that fit your lusts and you're saying, ah, yes, and now I look really good and everybody will look up to me because now I look good. But the spiritual laws, the ones that really deal with love for others and love for God, I don't have any interest in those. They're not, they're not controversial. They're not, they don't fit my party. They're not... Reformed or Baptist or Calvinist or anything. They just have to do with repentance and faith in Christ. I don't know. That's kind of boring stuff. I like like arguing about stuff and you know. Um, we can turn God's law into a selfish thing. That's atheism. I wouldn't have called it that. Mr. Charnock does. I think he's right. That's why as I sat and read this book and thought about it, I thought, wow. 
This changes my view of sin. This changes my view of my daily walk with God. Why don't I love God's word more? A principle of atheism in my flesh. Why is it that I'm more interested in some things in the scripture than in others? And I don't mean that we shouldn't be more interested in the central things of God's worship, but you know how it is. You get on some, like, hobby horse, and it becomes very absorbing to you. You're like, but wait, why am I so intrigued with this issue? Maybe it's because there's a lot of argumentation about it. And it's not really that clear in Scripture. It's not a big deal in Scripture, but it's a big deal to some group. Why does our flesh love least the most spiritual and pure of God's commands to us? Why do we have the most interest in laws that concern our property, the protection of our families, and less interest in those that concern his own proper glory and honor? Is it not because of our natural practical atheism that would call God and all his demands unreasonable, impure, inappropriate, and unjust? The sinful principle of practical atheism in the flesh. It reigns over the unbeliever. It has been conquered in Christ and those who are in Christ, but it's in their flesh. Sin's third atheistic claim, God should be the most miserable being. When I read this one, I thought, what What is he trying to get at? But I think he's right. Because the scriptures declare that God is the blessed God. That he dwells in uninterrupted happiness and glory. Nothing ruffles him. Nothing touches him. Our sin does not hurt him. It dishonors him in the world, but he will get all his glory. He'll get it in heaven. He'll get it in the cross of Christ. He'll get it in hell. But he is glorified. God is unruffled. He is undisturbed. This atheistic principle directly aims at displeasing God. And in so doing, It aims at making him miserable. Now, as I mentioned, Paul told Timothy that God is the blessed God. Some have paraphrased that to indicate that he is the eternally and infinitely satisfied and happy being. God is everlastingly happy in himself because he's perfect. He's infinitely perfect. And so he must be absolutely happy because he has himself. And that's all he needs. As he is infinite and eternal and dependent on no creature for his happiness, sin doesn't actually threaten his tranquility, as I already mentioned. But sin tries to reach to his throne and stir up a mutiny in his presence. It is impossible, but that is the nature of sin. That is its essence. That is what it drives at. Sin would, if it could, make God unhappy. Every sin is a sinner's best shot at the impossible, making God displeased making him miserable. Now, the Bible uses the terms displeased related to God, but it's talking about his eternal response to wickedness. It doesn't mean that we've given him a bad day. But sin aims to do that. Sin aims to give him a bad day. Man's sin seeks to make God subservient to man's desire. Sin says, God, you will serve me. And never was a slave more oppressed than God would be if once man could get at the Almighty. If he could get the Almighty under his hand, never would there be a greater abuse, a greater scorn, a greater reproaching, a greater hatred, a greater violence offered to any creature in the universe than man would offer to the infinite and thrice holy God if he could gain the dominance over the living God. If you question whether that is so, look at the cross of Jesus Christ. Yes, Christ said, I, no man takes my life from me, I lay it down of myself. Yes, the Father had determined it from before the foundation of the world. But who were the instruments? Men who saw God in the flesh? And what could they do but hate him and despise him and destroy him? Every sin is submission to Satan. Following the voice of treason against the holy government of God, every sin has in it the essence of oppressing God and holding him down trying to make him miserable, declare him unworthy, unhappy, and not God. Every sin is practical atheism because every sin seeks the impossible goal of making God as miserable as possible. Absolutely impossible, but that's the goal. That's what sin aims at. Praise God, it's utterly impossible. 
totally useless. It's a waste of time. All of the money and time and effort and energy men spend on sin in this world is absolutely a waste of time, even in their own experience. But it's what it aims at, to make God miserable. As sin says that God should be the most miserable being, it claims to make man himself his own end and happiness, which is to make God miserable. Because God is the infinite end, the infinite goal of all things. He is the glory of the universe. He is the one for which everything was created. Impersonated in Jesus Christ, all things were created by him and for him. But when man sins, he says, I want that for myself. I want to be the end of creation. He wants to make things serve him rather than God. He would make God himself serve him. This is to make ourselves God rather than the true God. And if you're not sure that that's true, that it's true that sin tries to make self the end of everything, consider a few facts. So this is a, sub, a section of subpoints under making God the most miserable being. Man makes himself the end of all things. We make self our ultimate end when we applaud ourselves and reflect optimistically on ourselves. Our thoughts continually turn back to think about how people thought about us, what we said or what we did, and of course we were wonderful, or at least next time we'll be wonderful. Oops, I guess I messed up on that one, but next time I'm going to be really good. We're constantly building some air castle of how great we are. What is that for? That's what we should be doing about God. What should we be doing as we have free time all of a sudden? Thinking upon the goodness and greatness of God, and here we are thinking upon the goodness and greatness of Nate. This is why Paul had to command the Romans not to think more highly of themselves than they ought to think. Romans chapter 12. Isn't it strange that we tend to find more pleasure thinking about how we did, our performance, and what people thought of us than we find thinking about God and his works? Isn't it easier to spend a long time thinking about issues that went down than it is to think about God's providences and mercies and great things that he's done for us? It's idolatry and it's practical atheism. We make self our ultimate end and thus dethrone God and seek to make him miserable when we ascribe to ourselves the honor and appreciation that should go to God. Think of Nebuchadnezzar. Is this not great Babylon that I have built? And then, of course, the heavenly voice. Down on all fours, Nebuchadnezzar. Instead, our voice should sing with the psalmist, Not unto us, not unto us, O Lord, but unto thy name. Give glory. It is a satanic impulse, an atheistic principle that would take to ourselves glory when it belongs to God. Another way in which this sinful principle seeks to make God miserable by making self our ultimate end is when we desire to have self-pleasing doctrines from God's word. We want to hear smooth words, gentle speeches from God, and if not, then... We'll roast the preacher. Micaiah must go to a prison house for a hard prophecy to Ahab. Herodias would rather wash her hands in John Baptist's blood than submit her ear to his reproofs. They would rather God be miserable and them happy. It's atheism. We make self our ultimate end when we're more concerned about injuries done to us than to God's name and glory. We're often more concerned about the shame of our sin than the evil of our sin. In correcting our children, we sometimes are more concerned about our reputation than the glory of God. You're making too much noise. You're making me look bad. We make self our ultimate end when we trust ourselves. Should we not pray to God and seek God when we get into a bind, when we have questions, when we need wisdom, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God. When troubles arise in the home, the church, or our personal endeavors, what is more appropriate, worry or casting ourselves upon the wisdom of God? Jeremiah 17 says, Cursed be the man that trusteth in man and maketh flesh his arm. Blessed is the man that trusteth in the Lord. Why? Why is the one cursed and the other blessed? Because the man who trusts in man is putting man in the place of God. He is, in effect, saying, uh, sorry, God, you're fired. Man can do it. 
We make ourselves the ultimate end when we call on God only in times of necessity. Do you visit God more often than you have an urgent need? Do you come to him just because he's glorious and you love to tell him so? Ignoring him until you have a need makes him a servant to your emergencies. And then Mr. Charnock says that we make ourselves the ultimate end when we ask God to bless our personal projects. We make the plan, and then we ask him to bless it, rather than asking him what the plan should be. That is to use God for our ends, rather than to submit ourselves to his ends, which in its principle is an attempt to make God miserable, which is a way of saying, no God. Mr. Charnock and David is not saying, are not saying that every sinner at every moment consciously thinks, no God. And especially those who love Christ and in the main are walking with him, when they fall into a sin, they're not thinking, I despise God. I want to make God miserable. That's not what I mean when I say that that's the goal of sin. Sin in itself is doing that. Sin, that's the principle of sin. That's the spirit of sin is there is no God. God is not worthy of a being. God is impure and unwise. God is foolish, and God should be miserable. That's the essence, the spirit, the, the drive of sin. Who's the author of sin? Satan. And what is he all about? Setting himself on the throne and God down. If you get on Satan's bandwagon, you're doing his business. And then lastly, sin is a part of practical atheism because it boasts an atheistic wish. We've already mentioned it, but Charnock gives a little more time to it, so I'll just mention a few things. Practical atheism can manifest itself in a conscious wishing that there were no God. As Roman one, Romans 1 tells us, all men know something of the judgment of God. Even consciences unenlightened by God's word know that there are some works they are doing that the all-powerful, all self-existent God does not approve of. How much more when a person knows from the word of God the awful judgment of God against sin. And that conviction gives birth to fear, and that fear, if not sweetly softened by faith in Christ, turns to dread and opposition and wishing that there were no God. They won't go to the point of saying there is no God. They know there is. They look out and they see the glorious works of God, as Romans 1 tells us that we see the power of God and the Godhead of God in his creation. So we can't say verbally there is no God. But I had an experience in my life years ago where going through certain experiences, a certain kind of conviction of sin, I don't believe it was a true biblical conviction, but just a sense of the weight of evil that was in me. There were moments when I wished I could be relieved. And the thought came to my mind, what if there were no God? What if I wasn't a creature? I even thought, what if I were just an animal? Maybe it'd be better. Those are all rebellious and atheistic thoughts. God is good. He calls men to himself. He calls us to himself. He commands us to come, as we'll see. But this atheistic principle says God is harsh when it should see the mercy of God. And then it says God is lenient when it should see the righteousness of God. But sin causes us to wish there were no God. Sinners burdened by conviction could wish God were dead. They've seen something of his holiness. They're convinced, but they're repulsed. They see that he will judge sin. They wish they'd never heard the truth of God, never known the truth. They wish they could disappear or God cease to exist. And that's the essence of atheism. And professed atheism often arises from that. People who have been burdened by sin, but then they were given a false gospel. Maybe they, you know, many Catholic countries have turned into atheist countries. What is that? Well, probably people who see something of the righteousness and holiness of God, but unbiblically, but something of it. Then they hear something of God's gospel, but it's false, and it doesn't re relieve their souls. It doesn't give them hope in Christ, and then they throw it all off. They say, no, there's no God. Other sinners have no conviction and no restraint into their sin, and their very debauchery makes them wish there were no God so they could have more freedom than they presently have. Then there are some who are convicted of sin and have adopted some form of religion, but they serve God from slavish fear rather than loving faith in Christ. They profess a gospel, but the real principle of their religion is appeasing God by their own efforts, 
They're always afraid they haven't done enough. They're always in despair. The wear and the drain of trying to perform enough to secure their hope with God leads to that sense of dark, black despair, and they wish God didn't exist so they could be free. All right, we've heard a bit about practical atheism. Practical atheism is the spirit of sin. It affects everyone. It's universal. Practical atheism makes the most absurd claims. God is unworthy of a being. God is foolish and impure. God should be the most miserable. Practical atheism wishes there were no God. But how can a practical atheist be recovered? That's the question. Unbelievers, those who do not know Christ, who are not walking with Christ, understand that practical atheism rules you completely. You've been saying in your heart, there's no God. You might not think it in your mind, but every act of sin, every movement of your heart controlled by sin is saying, there's no God. Believers, those who are in Christ, who have laid hope, laid laid hold on the hope set before you, who have rested your souls on Christ, understand that practical atheism in your flesh has been conquered by Christ, and it's hedged in, restricted, and diminished by the Spirit, but it's still a powerful principle in your flesh, and you are called to mortify it by the power of the Holy Spirit, by faith in Christ, by the instruction of the Word. For both believers and unbelievers, the basic instructions are the same. Be convicted, repent, believe, submit to the Word, and ask for the Holy Spirit. So I'll be giving these instructions and they apply to both in different ways, but they apply to both. First, be convicted of your practical atheism. Consider that this is all true of you. I imagine if you're in this room, you've prided yourself in not being an atheist. You're a theist. Well, my fellow theist, have you thought, acted, spoke, and lived like a person who believes in God? Has your heart been fully set on the glory and majesty of God or has it been a factory of filthy, stinking, disrespectful thoughts of him? Be convicted as you think on our text. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And if you wondered, well, that didn't apply to me. He says, there is none good. No, not one. The Lord looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand and seek God. That would be a theistic action to seek God. Because if you believe there's God and he's that great, you're going to seek him, right? Well, he didn't find any. They're all gone aside. They're all together become filthy. There's none that doeth good. No, not one. Be convicted as you hear the clamoring voice of your sin crying out, there is no God. Or, I wish there were no God. Every one of your sins is calling out with that voice. Secondly, repent. Repent. See the mercy and patience God shows to such a practical atheist as yourself. Either a believer, you look at yourself and you say, man, there's a lot of practical atheism in there. See God's patience and his mercy. Or an unbeliever, you still, you ate today. You breathed God's air. He showered upon you his goodness. His sun shone on you. His rain came upon you. Now, maybe here in Pensacola, we might have thought that was a curse. Well, it's actually a blessing. The trees keep growing. The plants keep producing. The animals keep living. We keep eating meat and plants and all kinds of good stuff. God has been very merciful, patient, and good to you. Repent of doubting God's perfection. The goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance, Romans chapter 2. Repent of neglecting your lawgiver's laws and ways. Repent of that complaining, griping response of your mind to God's truth. Cry out to the living God. Confess your sins, your practical atheism, even your despising and rejecting of him in all your works and words and thoughts. Be sorry for your sin. Hate it. Forsake it. And repent not only of your sinful actions to God, but confess also and hate and forsake the root, that spirit of self-deifying, God-denying impulse of your atheistic flesh. Repent of your practical atheism. 
Let the recognition of this sin humble you before the God that it dishonors. Thirdly, believe the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. Believe that God who you rejected made a plan from all eternity for your benefit. Believe that the God you wish did not exist made you to exist. Watched you, reject and oppose him, but made a way for his enemies to be right with him. Believe that the Son of God, the third person of the Blessed Trinity, who we've heard about these Sundays, became a man like you and me, but perfectly free from the pollution of that practical atheism. Believe he lived a life of perfect theism on our behalf. No doubt of his Father's perfections ever wrinkled his holy face. No scowl or scorn over God's providences ever darkened his pure heart. No word of discontent or unthankfulness against his father ever crossed his lips. He was a proper theist on our account, on our behalf, in our place. And then believe that he loved his people. He loved them. It says in John 13, he loved them and he loved them to the end. He loved them all the way to where he could cry on that cross. It is finished. Believe that he became a substitute for us in our law place. Believe that he fully lived the life we didn't live. He had the desires we should have had. He had the heart we should have had. He spoke the words we should have spoken. And then he died the death that atheists should die. Rejected by God's earth. It's his. Atheists shouldn't live here. And that's what we are. And scorned by God's heaven. Christ was hung up between heaven and earth, rejected by both, bearing the wrath and the judgment of God. And then, be convicted, repent, believe, and submit your life to God's holy word. Submit your runts, God-rejecting life to the pure word that God has spoken. Where did all your despising of God's word come from but your practical atheism? Instead of scorning, Desire the sincere milk of the word. Bow your ear to it. Open your hand to obey it. Set your feet to walk in its commands. If practical atheism is manifest in the scorning of God's law, then recovery, salvation, is manifest in loving, living, and serving God in his word. The word becomes everything to a true theist. Number five, cry to God, the God that you have despised, for mercy that he would give the Holy Spirit conviction, repentance, faith, the word, the Holy Spirit. Cry to that despised God to give you the greatest gift that he now gives. He gave his greatest gift, Christ, but through Christ, in Christ, is the Holy Spirit. How else would a practical atheist ever repent and be converted? How would someone, as Stephen Charnock pointed out, he said, after we've considered all these aspects of practical atheism, how it affects every fiber of our natural flesh, consider the difficulty of conversion and sanctification. Because would someone repent when their very bent of mind and heart is, I am God and he's not? Will someone ever say, I submit to God's word What about a believer? They've been regenerated. They have a new principle within them, but they still have the flesh, and that flesh is fully bent against God's ways. He says, consider how hard it is to be sanctified. How much opposition there is still. Both of those, conversion, sanctification, demand the mighty working of the Holy Spirit of God. You will not be converted without the Holy Spirit. That doesn't mean wait to repent and believe. It means Go to God and say, God, here I am in all my filth and my sin. I do repent, and if I haven't, help me to do it. Give me all the power of the Holy Spirit to do it. That's conversion. Turning from sin, turning to God, believing on his Son, only by the Holy Spirit. Cry out to him and give it. Believers, how are you going to be sanctified? Are you going to pull yourselves up, give yourself a boost, turn over a new leaf? What are you going to do? Holy Spirit. Cry out to God for him. Shall the Father not more richly give his Holy Spirit than a father who hears his son say, Daddy, can I have a can I have a biscuit? Can I have an egg? 
He'll give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. It's a promise. It's a promise. How else would a practical atheist ever repent and be converted? Self-love, reproach of God, despising of God are so prominent in the heart of the wretched sinner. What force could ever make them rightly return and be healed? Only God, the Holy Spirit. And he freely gives it. He gave his only begotten son. Come to Jesus and cry, Jesus, have mercy on me like blind Bartimaeus. Open my eyes by the power of the Holy Spirit. Give me your Holy Spirit in fullness. How do you expect to be killing sin and bringing forth good fruits? Think back over what we've considered. Think of the voice of the proud flesh boasting in its resources, parading itself against the glory of God. Consider that you, believer, still have much practical atheism to deal with in your flesh. Your flesh still wants God to be dead. Your spirit loves that he's alive. Your, your new man, your new self, loves God. You want God to be glorified. But why is it that sometimes you want to sin? Because there's a principle in you that wants God to be dead. To handle that battle, you need the Holy Spirit. No other power could overcome this dreadful disease in your flesh. Only an omnipotent power as great as that of God himself. Consider the mercy and condescension of this Holy Spirit. He indwells the hearts of those still deformed by practical atheism. You know you can buy a fixer-upper house, work on it from a distance, live at your former house, and come and work on it. Or you can move in with all the dirt and mess and rot. And that's what the Holy Spirit has done. He comes and does a live-in repair. He is a residential fixer-upper. He comes and moves in. It's an inconvenience. But he's almighty. He lives there and he fixes at the same time. Wow. He is so merciful. Trust his power. Rely on his strength. Only through the Holy Spirit, by faith in the living Christ Jesus, will you put to death the deeds of the body and live. Only by the Holy Spirit will you overcome, bear fruit to God, and reach eternal glory. But one of the things that the Holy Spirit uses is conviction of sin. As we see our sins in the light of his word. That was my goal tonight. This was all about sin till the end. My purpose here was to convict us to the heinousness of our practical atheism and to drive us to a more thorough repentance and faith in Christ and the seeking of the power of the Holy Spirit. So live no more as a practical atheist. Live now as a child of God by the Spirit through faith in Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, our Father in heaven, have mercy upon us. Lord, practical atheism would come back and haunt us at this very moment. It is in my flesh. It is in all of us here. Some it reigns in. Oh, Lord, have mercy upon them. Deliver them before it drags them down to hell. Oh, Father. Oh, Lord Jesus Christ, if you return as you will soon and you see us in our rags and filth, of this despicable, sinful principle with no working of the Holy Spirit in us. Lord, with no blood of Jesus Christ to cleanse us from our sins, with no substitute for our wretched performances before you, O oh Lord, there will be no, absolutely no hope for us. But, O oh Lord, we cry out to you that by faith, every one of the people under the sound of my voice would reach out to the Lord Jesus Christ. O oh Lord, that they would lay hold on you and say, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And Lord, have you ever not blessed one who laid hold of you by faith? Oh, you do hear. Hear tonight, we pray, and have mercy upon us. Oh, Lord, help us to walk as children of God, lovers of God. Cleanse us of every rebellion against you. For Christ's sake, because of his blood, oh, Lord Jesus, thank you for living for us, for dying for us, Thank you for the Holy Spirit. Oh, pour him out upon us in abundance, we pray. For Christ's sake, amen. If you would, please stand for the benediction. And this is a prayer at the end of Psalm 14. And it's a prayer that is being answered and will be answered. Oh, that the salvation of Israel were come out of Zion. When the Lord bringeth back the captivity of his people, Jacob shall rejoice and Israel shall be glad. Amen. Amen. You are dismissed.